0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Cults, cons, conspiracies. These are a few of my favorite things. No, but seriously, (laughs) Books about cults, cons, and conspiracies are some of my all-time favorites. So for our summer limited edition quarterly box, we've bundled three cults, cons, and conspiracy books to share with you for a limited time. The first book is Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, and Supremacy, and the Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing by Emily Lynn Paulson, the juicy tell-all memoir from a former top earner in a popular MLM. Because nothing says cults and cons quite like network sales. The next book in this bundle is Yellow Face by R.F. Kwong, which is sure to be on the bestsellers list when it releases in May. This scathing takedown of publishing and publicity is perfect for readers tapped into the book internet, and anyone who loves an accidental con artist. Is June Song a con artist or a conspiracist, you tell me? Finally, we're featuring a book that's currently in development for film, The Honeys by Ryan Lasala. This is like midsummer meets Mean Girls with a lovable, gender-fluid teen at the center of a cult-like group of teen girls with conspiracies right under their noses. Pre-orders for our Cults, Cons, and Conspiracies box opens on May 1st for shipment by June 1st, and we'll only have 100 of these boxes. So make sure you order yours ASAP, no subscription required. Head to feministbookclub.com to pre-order yours today.
1: Hi, my name is Ashley, and I am a Feminist Book Club content contributor. This August will mark four years since Toni Morrison passed on, yet not much time goes by when I do not see an interview clip of her on Instagram. Her voice resonates with the person who posted the clip, as subsequently with the people in the comments. I read Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, I am fully convinced Ms. Morrison has not touched a dictionary in her life. Her grasp of vocabulary and language is beyond measure. She means what she says and says what she means. Few people can articulate society and be prolific, not only in their work, but in their personhood as well. Ms. Morrison is one of those few people. She, she wrote the lives of Black people to be full and unflinching. It's almost unnecessary to speak of her in the past when so much of her is in the present. In Playing in the Dark, she writes about the Africanist presence in fiction by Poe, Melville, Cather, and Hemingway. And she says about Africanism, it is an investigation into the ways in which a non-white African-like or Africanist presence or persona was constructed in the United States. And the imaginative uses this Fabricated presence, sir. I think a lot about criticism and what that means today. It feels as though everyone is considered a critic when they have an opinion. We see this on various social, mi- social media sites, particularly on Twitter. When anyone shares an opinion, it can spark this backlash or this fervor or this outrage when it really needs to be conversation. And it can criticism, the way that it's spoken on social media, can be a dire mistake. It can be a distraction. It can be this unnecessary conversation that distracts from what's most important. I also look to Toni Morrison to speak on what it means to be an author and to represent Black people and to do so in a universal way to help readers understand what who Black people are, especially in a time when book banning is working to erase Black people and Black authors from literature, when oftentimes they are also being demeaned. She speaks of criticism as there seems to be more or less tacit agreement among literary scholars that because American literature has been clearly the preserve of white male views, genius and power, those views, genius and power are without relationship to and removed from the overwhelmingly presence of black people in the United States. I not only encourage you all to read this book, to show how, which shows how the tenets in which we see her work ring firm her presence, her spirit, her actions into putting her words on the page. But I also encourage you all to watch the documentary Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, in which she talks about her upbringing in Lorraine, Ohio, to attending Howard University, to teaching at Princeton University. And from reflections of her contemporaries such as Sonia Sanchez and Fran Leibovitz. To me, Toni Morrison is peerless. Her voice marinates something beautiful, even in the most grave points. And Toni Morrison's books are no stranger to being banned only because of its power to reflect and to be prolific. And it's interesting seeing her on Instagram When we're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, that when she shows up, when she speaks, that is not a time to scroll, but a time to pause and to listen to her and to be aware of criticism. And that it is just as vital as the voice behind it, but should not be used as a distraction to not deter from the voices who need to be uplifted as Toni Morrison does in her work, in her fiction, and in her nonfiction. Thank you.
2: Everyone, welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast. I'm Taylor, and I'm here today with Brianna Holt, author of In Our Shoes, or Being a Young Black Woman in a Not-So-Post-Racial America. I am really excited to talk about this book because like a lot of the things that are in the book, like I just think about on a daily basis, they live rent free inside my head. So yeah, I'll go ahead and like jump into it. So Brianna, this book centers on like the experiences of Black women. You talk a lot about like your own experiences and the experiences from Black women that you interviewed. How do you see this book specifically and Black women using their voices in this way to affect the feminist movement?
3: Yeah, what I hope to do with this book is exactly that. I hope that Black women can use this book as something that validates their experiences, but also something to educate others so that they do not have to do the work themselves. I do not think the onus is on us to educate people about how to um, be anti-racist and create better conditions for us after we have been doing this for decades. You know The conversations and the stories in my book specifically, they aren't new. This data has been researched for years. And so, I mean, it's just updated data. And so it's at a point where it feels like we are just in a cycle of constantly re-educating people. And so I hope that this will take the pressure off of Black women having to dive into their own personal stories and be able to hand this book to someone and be like, this is my experience. This can teach you about it so that I don't have to sit here for hours and days on and try to get you on board with what I'm experiencing.
2: Exactly, because there are plenty of resources out here that people can educate themselves on instead of going to their Black friend. And Mm -hmm. that also kind of reminds me of like, you reference a lot of experiences from your life where either friends or, like, guys you are in romantic relationships, like, they might not have, like, just considered or centered your experience as a Black woman and girl, depending on what time of your life you were referencing. How do you think or how do you feel like being that Black friend that always has to educate about race issues affects relationships?
3: Yeah, I think honestly, in the beginning, you know, initially it feels like something you're maybe eager to do. You're excited that your friend or your partner who doesn't have the same experience as you is, it seems very willing to learn about it and wants to know more. But after time, it does become draining, very emotionally exhausting and taxing. We saw a lot of this during the summer, 2020, when a lot of Black people, you know, were approached by their non-Black friends, asking for information, asking them to go back through their own personal history and remind me if there was ever a time I was racist or I offended you. And like I said in the beginning, initially, it seemed like something that was maybe, you know, it, it was exciting. It was like, oh, we are going through a movement. People are willing to, you know, have these conversations now. But days on in, it was very draining. You know, you're still consuming that same news every day. And then you're constantly having to have these conversations, bring up traumatic experiences that maybe you, whether consciously or unconsciously, had buried. And then to see that people were still willing to ask you for unpaid labor to educate them when they could just go find these resources. And I think eventually it can have a negative impact on those relationships. If it feels like, okay, this relationship is no longer as equal or a partnership. I'm now the teacher in this relationship. I'm teaching you. You are learning. I am putting in work. You are receiving. I am not receiving. It creates an imbalanced relationship.
2: Right, exactly, because that's how I definitely felt summer 2020, getting lots of texts, like, from the director where I worked. And oh, wow. From, yeah, like, just all these random people just, like, reaching out to be like, I'm here for you if you need anything. Or, like, there's any time, like, I apologize. Like, I definitely experienced and continue to experience a lot of that. And that also kind of reminds me of, you talk a lot about kind of like respectability and code switching and how a Mm -hmm. lot of Black women feel like they have to do that in order to survive, navigate different white spaces. And it reminded me a lot about my feelings of being like a palatable Black girl Mm -hmm. and how like my experiences have been different from like my friend, for example, who I used to work with, like she's. A darker skinned black woman. She has a deeper voice. She sometimes like all of that is coded as aggressive versus me. It's like, I'm like smiley all the time. And like, yeah, that, that is a trauma response of like years and years of like trying to fit in and code switch. So I would love to explore more about this topic with you. So what does it mean for? specifically talking about code switching and being palatable for white people. What does it mean for a black woman's survival? And do you think it can be harmful in any way?
3: Yeah. So I first want to start just talking about what code switching means. If somebody is familiar with the term, pretty much code switching is the way in which like a member of an underrepresented group, typically in the situation, the black person, Whether they consciously or unconsciously adjust their language, their syntax, but not even just like language or syntax, but also behavior and appearance to fit into dominant culture, which is usually the white culture, the predominant culture in that space. We see this happen a lot in work environments, but also in situations of law enforcement. Maybe you're being pulled over by a police officer and you, whether it's naturally or consciously, you start to code switch to try to soften your appearance to make this person really see you more as a human. I think in code switching, Black women are trying to humanize themselves, are trying to receive respect, are trying to receive the same treatment as the people in the dominant culture. And what it has come out in a lot of current research, recent research is that code switching doesn't really actually have the benefits that we have you know, kind of been taught that they have under this like, umbrella of respect- respectability politics. I feel like code switching actually helps a person in the dominant culture feel more comfortable around me. I'm toning down my Blackness for you to feel comfortable being around a Black person. Code switching has never resulted in me receiving a promotion, a raise, climbing up the corporate ladder. You know, And then when you look at the grand scheme of things as well, Black women are still the least employed. We're the most underpaid. We are constantly skipped down on opportunities. So it doesn't matter really how palatable you are if at the end of the day, we are still at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to all these different areas. And so I think that code switching has become something that really has made, that has been used to make the white person or the non black person feel comfortable around us when we are in their space, as opposed to something that we can use to succeed and climb up the corporate ladder.
2: I definitely agree. And so, like you mentioned in the book, like, because like code switching and respectability hasn't gotten you like the advancement that like we're told that it gets us as society, you mentioned that you did not want to make yourself smaller in order to be accepted by white people. Yeah. What did living your authentic self mean to you,
3: yeah? I think personally for me, living my authentic self means showing up exactly how I want to show up and how I am comfortable showing up. Showing up the same way that I show up around my Black friends, around my Black femme friends, being able to show up in white dominant spaces that same way. So whether I want to have my hair straight, wear my hair straight, wear my hair in braids, wear it naturally kinky, coily, like I should be able to do that wherever I am and not have this fear in the back of my head that maybe I won't be seen the same way or I'll be perceived as something that I'm not or not receive respect. And I think like with growing up and getting older, I am, I will say I am lucky to be in a place that I am able to show up more myself. And I think that happens with some black women as you do move up the corporate ladder. Definitely my first role when I was a junior writer or a fellow, you know, you're just trying to fit in. And you're just hoping that they will, you know, you can stay employed and eventually have, you know, have tenure and move up in that company. But I think now I'm in a position where it's like, I'm unwilling to show up in a lot of places and code switch or be tone police or things like that. It's very much like, I feel like I have reached a place in my career where if someone doesn't want to work with me, I will find work elsewhere. But I do think a lot of young Black women, when you are first starting off in your career and before you "Quote unquote, make it. You do have to do these things to be able to eventually get to that place where you make it." Issa Rae talks about this. How when it came time to *Insecure*, they wanted her to cast like a main white character in her friend group, and at that point, it, she was able to say, "No, I'm not doing that." But if it had been, you know, maybe originally, like if she had been in a position where it wasn't a huge network, and she was like, "Well, maybe let me do this now with this smaller network," so that maybe eventually HBO will want to work with me, then you can see like the code switching or the, you know, making yourself smaller, show up more.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it's like really hard when you're trying to like reconcile like survival and it's like, but I'm the survival means being myself too. Mm -hmm. So I definitely see that, especially with like younger Black women trying to like get their foot in the door with their careers. So you, like I said, you talked a lot about your personal experiences, but you also interviewed a host of other Black women. So what was it like to compile like, the interviews with this, these Black women for this book?
3: Yeah, I think that was the most enjoyable thing about writing this book was being able to interview other Black women. I had a lot of hesitation about writing a memoir that was completely about me. I don't think my experience can speak to the experience of all Black women, of course not. And even the Black women who I interviewed, we still, there will be Black women who will read this book and maybe not completely resonate with it or have different experiences. And I think that's what's so beautiful about being a Black woman is that we have so many different skin tone shades, so many different versions of features and hair textures and where we're from and our upbringings. And it really creates for these very diverse experiences. But I think talking to other women, what was so great about it was that it really validated my experiences. I think it's very easy as a Black woman, people in general, but as Black women specifically, to develop or have some experience with imposter syndrome because you are in situations where you know that you are doing better than someone else. You know that maybe you were qualified than someone else, yet you see these other people exceeding in ways that you aren't able to. And so you develop this imposter syndrome about, well, maybe I need to be working harder or maybe I need to be working smarter or better. And it's just like, it could quite literally just be because you're a Black woman and that's why you didn't receive the same raise or promotion or opportunity as Caitlin or Sarah. And it really messes with your self-perception of yourself and your self-worth. And so there have been situations a lot of times in the past where I kind of Put that all on me, where I was working at a media company and I quite literally saw every white coworker that I started on the same day with. We came in through this fellowship and saw them exceed at this company in ways that I was not able to. And not to shit on them, but I'm the only one who has a book deal at the end of the day out of that group. So I knew my worth and I knew that I could write and I knew. And so I developed this imposter syndrome that I was like, I am just not a strong writer. I am just not good at this because why am I not able to exceed the way they are? And so talking to these other Black women and seeing they had very similar experiences to me really validated my experiences and made me, you know, push off the whole oh maybe it's just a coincidence. And it's coincidence. And it's like no, wow, this is happening to this Black woman in Wyoming and this one in Alabama and this one in Atlanta and this one who grew up in Houston and this like. You know, and this one who's thirty three, and this one who's twenty six, and so it was very like, I don't know. It also just went. It it really pushed me to continue writing the book because there were times when I was like, this book is hard to write, and I was like, but no, we need this, and women, a lot of us are having these experiences, and they need to be shared, and they need to be put out there.
2: And thank you for like putting those stories out here, and thank you for pushing through and doing the hard work, and thank you, like, birthing this book into the world. To, contra- to totally contradict myself in all the things of strength and pushing through, you talk a lot about like strength of Black women and how this stereotype or caricature um, is harmful to us. How do you think we can go against that narrative?
3: Yeah. I think the way to go against that narrative is to, I think Black women, we have such a tool with social media, with the internet, And be able to have these conversations, especially TikTok, the way that I I use so many videos from TikTok to just get ideas of what are young Black women talking about right now. And I think the strong Black woman trope comes up a lot. I actually recently saw my friend Sierra had posted something on her Instagram story where it was this list from Bella Hadid about like the different ways that people can compliment people without complimenting their appearance. And one of the things in there, I think it said, you are so strong and you're so resilient. And my friend Sierra, who is a Black woman, said, you know, shared that on her Instagram story. She said, but don't call me strong. And I think it is important that we do have conversations about, like, the negative impact of calling Black women strong women. Yes, while we can be strong and we can be resilient. It very much, in my opinion, and as the Black women who I interviewed in this book, a lot of them, as you probably read, saw that they said it was a dismissal. A lot of times when people are calling us strong, it's in situations of extreme turmoil, you know, very turbulent experiences and conditions that we don't see happening to other women. And it's usually a situation where we got through it by ourselves or we are kind of asking for support or help. And the person, instead of like asking us, how can I support or help you, their response is, you're strong you're resilient. You'll get through it. You'll be fine. And I think we really can reject that by letting people know, do not call me that. Like having those conversations and not looking at it as like this crown to place on your head that you're being called strong. And I do want to say though, I, there's nothing wrong in my opinion for me. If a black woman refers to me as strong, that is way different than a non-black person or a man telling me I'm strong. Because I think it's coming from a different place. I think it's coming from, one, it's coming from a place of understanding and similarity. And one seems to be coming from a place of dismissal or kind of like superhumanizing me as like, you can just take the brunt of everything. You can, I don't want to take the brunt of everything. If I could choose to not be in this situation or choose to have help, I would. And so to then respond to that as strong is just very negative. Yes, and I am trying
2: to fight this strong woman narrative as well. And I feel like it's too like a generational thing. I know my mom says like, oh, you're so strong. And like, Mm I'm just like, I don't want to be. This is why I'm crying right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let's switch gears to kind of like talking about allies. And in one chapter... You mentioned that you don't care for the term Karen and would rather, you know, like call a spade a spade and say racist white woman when a white woman's being racist. Mm -hmm. How do you think the power of words and labels shape Black women's experiences or just even in general experiences of moving towards
3: an anti-racist future? I think people don't understand how powerful words are and the impact of words. I will come back to the Karen thing, but one thing I think about that I talk about specifically in my book is the term microaggressions. And when you just break up that word, it's micro and it's aggression. Micro means small. If a microaggression is something that is considered a microaggression is the bias or the belief that Black people are physically stronger, have a higher pain threshold, can tolerate pain in ways that you know other people can't, then that microaggression, that belief, then leads to Black people being neglected in healthcare and medical setting. That leads to them having more suffering, which can lead to death. We see it with childbirth, with the mater- maternal mortality rate being four to five times higher for Black women. And that all stems back from a microaggression. And so my opinion is how micro is an aggression that can kill you. And so when we put these terms, when we, when we call things micro and microaggression, when we Label of racist white woman Karen, it really just like diminishes the actual impact and harm of this racism that is going on. And so I talk about how, like, there's no other group of people when they're racist that we have given them like a moniker, like a, a, a fake name, a pseudonym, you know? And so calling racist white woman Karen removes the words white woman from that term. And so then it's no longer like, oh, she's a racist white woman, she's a Karen. And it doesn't make us like really realize anyone can be a Karen, anyone can be, or any racist, any white woman can be racist. And so being able to label someone else as such really takes it away. And I think like those terms, it's just important that we start really like being careful with what we're saying, what words we're using when we're talking about racism that black women experience, because a lot of these terms are just used to diminish our experience.
2: Yes, and I agree, and yeah, after reading that, I'm like, I'm never using the term caring again. Yeah, I'm we're not honest. saying that anymore. yes we're telling it how it is in 2023. Mm-hmm. And so you also wrote one question that you asked at the end of one of the chapters that really stuck with me is like, what is wokeness without lifestyle change? Mm-hmm. So with that question being asked, like, how can people become how can non-black people And even men, Black or non-Black, become better allies or accomplices for Black women.
3: Yeah, I think it's important. Well, I think what I hope that this book will cause those group of people to do is self-reflect on the relationships that they hold with Black women. I think a lot of people who will read this book who are Black women as well will also realize when reflecting that maybe they only have a few Black women in their lives. Maybe there's only... Three black women that they can name that they are actually close to, and also figure out why that is as well. And I think that the way they can become better allies is actually asking black women what they need. I write in this in the book that the stereotype of the angry black woman, you know, we talk so much about black women are angry, but is anybody asking black women what they are angry about? Nobody's asking us what we're angry about. No one is having those conversations with us. They see us, you know, talk about something and, and wipe it off as angry or complaining or, you know, fed up or never satisfied. And it's like, are you, have you had a conversation with a Black woman to understand what she's going through? Because it's, I feel like as soon as people start doing that, you will quite naturally know how to become a better ally to us. I think just the, you know, broad scheme of things is being a better ally is supporting Black women. I gave some examples of how, like, you know, a friend passed along, passed along her Instagram for modeling agency's Instagram for me in summer 2020, instead of just like taking the knowledge and information I was giving her, she was like, you should be the person who receives this platform and has that conversation. I've had tons of white women, non-black people, black men advocate for me in different ways. I've had white women come with me to doctor's appointments, which I talk about that, where I was having a situation with a doctor and my white friend was like, I'm going to the doctor appointment with you because I know they won't treat me like this ex-boyfriends as well, who have stepped up and used their privilege to just find ways to really be like a barrier between like the racism that can happen from someone and, and me. And so I think it's really important to just figure out like, what are the ways that you can support Black women directly? I think a lot of people think of support as like, well, I donated to this charity. I posted the Black Square. I did this. And it's like, yeah. And what do the Black women who are around you think of you? What experience are you having with them personally?
2: Right. And like the donating, the resharing information, that's very passive. It's not actively helping Black women. So like you said, like, what do the Black women in your life, like, think of you? Like, how are you supporting them? Right. So, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this book. It was, like, super digestible and, like, the concepts, like, you broke down really well. And, like, I just appreciate it so much. So, Thank you. That makes yeah. me so happy. The last couple questions I have for you is what book have you recently read or a book that has really impacted you lately?
3: Yeah. So I will be honest, I have not done a ton of reading other than reading that have been specifically for my book. I will go ahead and prop up Coebex White Feminism, which I used a lot of research or used her book as research for my book when I was talking about, I think it was chapter eight or chapter seven, whichever chapter is woke and talking about specifically how white women can be better allies. It is a very thick book, but when I say this book was so transformative and one of the best books, I, nonfiction books I've ever read, I recommend it to anyone. I also read this book called The Dating Divide by my friend Celeste Kurrigan. I know there were other authors as well, and I cannot remember their names. But that was also a book that I did in preparation for my book. It's really based on what it's like to date in the modern age on dating apps and the racism, digital racism, basically, that happens on dating apps and why people have the preferences that they have. I was someone who never thought that I had any date. Like, I think everyone thinks that their dating preferences are very natural and organic to like, well, I went to this high school, I went to this college, I'm from this area. This is why I'm more so into these people this this book is like the first book that has ever like slapped me in the face and made me realize like, no, some of your preferences are problematic. Even having a preference is problematic and it was just very interesting. So anyone who wants to like grow in any way, I recommend that. And then also Jay Shetty's A Rules of Love. I'm currently reading that. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately and yeah, I'm reading that because I am looking for love. So need to do some self-help before fully diving into that. I love that so much.
2: And I'm excited to, I had read White Feminism and like it's so that good, right? was like, it was so good. It was so good. And uh, I'm definitely going to check out The Dating Divide and Eight Rules of Love because like when you were talking about dating preferences, I was like, oh, like, yeah, you never
3: think like yourself. No, that book is crazy. Yeah. We all yeah. realize like our dating preferences are not wholesome. And it really just pushes you to like really ask yourself questions that typically, you know, it's very hard for us all to like ask ourselves questions. And I feel like that book really had me like self-reflecting in a truthful way about myself.
2: About it. I'm about it. Yeah. And I don't know if if you're not ready for people to slide into your DMs, but uh, other than that, where can
3: people find you and your work? Uh? Uh, my website is BriannaHolt.me. I post all of my writing there, mostly like my articles and book tour information and just really any updates related to my career. And then my Instagram is at Brianna Holt, And then my Twitter is at Brianna in Holt, a letter um, for my middle name because someone else had my handle.
2: Always so rude when people take your name. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brianna. And again, Everybody should check out this book. Like I said, it's like super digestible and it's super important, especially if you are not a Black woman, to get tangible ways how you can support the Black woman in your life. So thank you so much. We'll
0: see y'all next time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club.
1: Well, Red Woman is a